someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Boy, uh, after this morning, I, like, like Gary, I want to thank Jake for volunteering to do all future children's lessons. Uh, that's, that's, that's a nice little break, isn't it? Excellent. And preaching next week, too. That would be good. Uh, this morning, as we jump in, I want to start off with a scenario. If a stockbroker came to you this week and sat down with you and had coffee and they said, I, I have an investment option for you, an investment opportunity that's made some great gains and I want you to consider investing in it. And as I tell you about it, the few things to know about the stock opportunity is that it's going to cost a significant financial investment, but this particular stock is also going to require a, a pretty substantial investment of your time and your energy as well but you'll get some good gains. But there's one more thing you need to know about this stock. At some point in the future, and I don't know when, but it will happen, at some point you're going to realize that uh, you've lost all of your gains that you've made on this investment, and you will lose the original principal investment as well, and all of that will be gone, and you won't know when it's going to happen. But you can enjoy it up until that point. Would you sign the dotted line on that investment? Of course not. You'd be an absolute fool to do so. That's the exact point of this passage. And that's how Jesus wants you to think about certain things in this world if we are going to be disciples that follow him. So how do we get there? Well, today we are uh, in Luke 12. We'll be there today and next week as we continue our sermon series on stewardship. We've looked at time, we've looked at money, and today we are beginning to look at energy for this week and next week. Uh, energy is uh, a discipleship issue. I don't mean uh, sending you good, positive vibes and energy kind of energy. I mean the great commandment kind of energy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love God with the very energy that you have been given, the very energy you exert in life consecrate that and offer it completely and wholly to God and love Him. Energy is a discipleship issue. But this passage uh, seems to be about greed, doesn't it? So where does energy fit in? 
Well, part of it is that uh, energy isn't something that's just kind of out there somewhere that we offer to God. Energy always follows desire. Nobody spends their energy invested in something they don't want. Energy is an expression of the heart. And so, if you remember, uh, you know, the, well, last week, uh, Ryan brought up the fact that, you know, pastors never really hear somebody come in and say, I'm greedy. And yet in verse 15, in our passage today, Jesus says very clearly, be on guard against all forms of covetousness and greed. All forms of it. We have to be watchful and be careful. This passage is about the narrowing and simplistic nature of greed that causes us to lose perspective. Because greed is extremely deceptive. And I think one of the reasons that we never, uh, nobody ever really says, hey, I'm, I'm greedy, is because we, we so easily baptize our greed. We so easily baptize it because it, it hides so nicely behind our kind of baptized motives and intentions. But if you think about energy for a second, we think about energy and what goes into the things that we pursue, it might begin to take on a different light. So perhaps we might not see our greed on the surface, but if we begin to, or begin to think about where is it that we place and invest our energy, we might see some things that we're greedy for. And it's different for each person. But we baptize it so quickly, and so somebody can say, you know, uh, if, I, if I work hard and make a lot more money, I can give more to the church. That's perfectly true. But how much energy will it require for you to go up a little bit on the pay scale? Like how much of it are you going to have to give it? Of yourself are you going to have to give? Or you can say, you know, hey, in this, uh, in this housing market, why not buy as big a house as you possibly can and kind of maybe even a, a little bit more than you can actually afford. Get one more bedroom, one more bath because it's a good investment. And hey, you know what? With all that extra room, we can use it for the kingdom and have people come over and be using it all the time. Sure, you can do that. But how much will it cost you and how stressed out will you be just trying to maintain it and just to even simply clean it and keep it relatively unchaotic for a week? It's easy to baptize our greed, but it's a lot harder to baptize our energy. So where does our energy go? Well, I think our context is always the wealthiest culture, you know, per capita the world has ever known. We live in a very wealthy culture, and in light of that, so much of our energy is bound up in maintaining and pursuing that quality of life that we want. You know, it's bound up in the quality of life that we've been given as a product of being in a wealthy culture. So, you know, you're spending time to stop and fill up your, your, your tank with gas, fixing an air conditioning unit, the energy that goes into, like, doing a major project on the house, doing, you know, buying a new car, getting a new roof. So much of our energy is bound up in the quality of life. And Jesus in our passage today will say, it's not, there's nothing inherently wrong about wealth. It's the problem that we are so easily deceived by it. And you believe the promises that it makes. And you sign on that dotted line that says, this is my life. This is the value of my life. And Jesus says that when we begin to buy into the promises of wealth and greed, you oversimplify your life to a point where death ultimately comes and it surprises us. We're not ready for it. Because we've based our life on something far too small. And he says, be on guard in a world that's constantly wanting you to sign on the dotted line of a bad investment. And as we jump into our passage, 
it's uh, at the beginning of, uh, well, it's, it's at uh, kind of the front end of a particular transition in the book of Luke. In Luke 9, verse 51, there's a kind of famous verse that says, And Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And it's saying that Jesus set his, his life, the energy, the strength that he exerted in his life towards the cross. That that's exactly what he, everything was being funneled into, was heading to the cross. And as he begins to, on, on that journey from out in the suburbs of doing ministry, moving into the city, as he's on that journey, his teaching about discipleship becomes harder and harder the closer he gets to the cross. And you see it in the first 12 verses of chapter 12. We didn't include it in the passage, but I'm just going to summarize it uh, very quickly for you. And I want you to listen for how narrowing discipleship is. For how Jesus talks about the challenges of it. In those first 12 verses before our passage today, he says, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who, after he has killed the body, can send the soul to hell. I will acknowledge before the angels those who acknowledge me before men. But I will deny the one who denies me before men. And when they bring you into the synagogues before the rulers and authorities, when you're, when you're put on trial for following me and you have to defend yourself, don't worry about what you should say. In the moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Do you hear the costliness of discipleship? And in some ways, how surprising would that be? Probably people coming just to say, you know, I, I just kind of came for you to like heal me or heal somebody that I brought. And you're talking about being put in front of rulers and authorities and having to give some sort of defense for following you. I didn't maybe understand who I thought you were. And in, then in verse 13, after all of, these, all of this that Jesus is teaching, what happens, which is what we often do when Jesus wants to talk about the cost of discipleship, is that we change the subject. And in verse 13, you have a guy that raises his hand and interrupts Jesus and says, uh, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell him to give me what's mine. Does this man sound like he's ready to follow Jesus? Does he sound like he's even remotely on the same page as Jesus? He changes the subject. And Jesus begins to push back on him. And he shows that uh, perhaps this story is here, above all else, to show us that this man's pursuit of wealth highlights the danger of greed. And it highlights the fact that what it causes us to, to do is that we lose perspective and we have a small view of life and it actually distracts us from the reality of our existence and the very dilemma that we face. And it says that, oh, if you can just have enough stuff, everything will be fine. And Jesus starts to push back on him, and he just says, do you not understand how small your life has become? He sees this man's greed, and he sees right through him, and he pushes back, and he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What a small view of your own life you've settled for. Why is that? Well, Because in reality, he owns nothing. Nothing he has, he actually owns. If he got the inheritance, he wouldn't own it. And his life is boiled down, and he finds value in essentially pursuing and trying to hoard things that he can't even keep. 
And death is the great reminder and the great repossessor of all the things that we would try to accumulate for ourselves. Death is the one thing that reminds us that we have to remember is that you and Bill Gates end up dying and end up in the same tax bracket. Death puts everybody on an even playing field. And the biggest question of your life is, are you rich towards God? Not are you rich in this world? Completely different set of questions is on Jesus' mind. But he's not annoyed with this man and he doesn't ignore him. He's actually gracious and he pushes back on him. And he begins to offer him a counter perspective to begin to help him understand a bigger understanding of life. That life is more than possessions. And he gives this parable that focuses on death. Starts talking about death and he offers this man a contrast. He says, you know what, if you want to focus on this, how about we step back for a second and we talk about death. And then if we talk, to, talk about that, let's see if it changes the conversation about this. Let's see if we could get you to think about it a little bit differently. Kind of maybe give an expression of why Jesus does this, uh, why a contrast can be powerful. Is uh, I came across a radio uh, program this week and I heard about this particular thing that's been happening and I'm like, no way. That, that can't be real. So I got on the internet, I typed it up, and of course, it's real. And you're probably going to think I'm a little I'm lying, but this was not found on the onion. This is a true story. Uh, evidently, in some of the wealthy uh, neighborhoods in Florida, uh, our, um, our fellow American citizens are, are under great suffering uh, because of peacocks. So uh, 10 years ago, it became very en vogue to buy a peacock and just fix up your yard buy a peacock and just kind of allow that to be the statement piece of extravagance and, and splendor for your life. And so they would just, all these people would just have peacocks kind of roaming their front yard and they're very beautiful. Uh, and so the problem is, is that peacocks aren't natural to Florida. They had to ship them in, which also means that uh, peacocks have no natural predators in Florida. And so they have filled and subdued the earth is what they've done because the peacocks have just absolutely bred like gangbusters and they are all over the place. And so in this article, they were talking about what you thought was this really beautiful animal is actually really violent and territorial and uh, they actually are extremely loud and wake everyone up at all sorts of hours of the night. And so uh, this one lady will talk about Miss, Mrs. O'Neill. I can just see Mrs. O'Neill talking in this article. She gets up and she was so mad. She gets up of a morning and she says, about on average on any morning, for some reason, I can count about 30 peacocks on my roof. And she says, do you know how much poop 30 peacocks produces? On my porch, on my car, on my roof, in my pool. It's all over the place. She says, I have a sign out in my yard that says, don't feed the peacocks. But all the tourists want to see the peacocks, so they drive through the neighborhood, and they get out, pull the sign out, and just feed all the peacocks. And so then, you know, the cycle continues, and there's more to clean up. Then she said also, she goes, they're actually really territorial birds. And so she's like, whenever they go by my car, and they look, and they see their reflection, they think it's another peacock, and so they start pecking at it. She says, I've had to repaint my Lexus twice just to fix this problem. And then she said, not only that, but I have this neighbor, Mrs. Hernan, who lives next door. And she actually has a sign too in her yard, but it actually says peacocks welcome. And so she actually feeds the peacocks and, they, and she loves it. 
And then a member of the HOA said, you know, it's amazing how this issue just puts pits neighbor against neighbor. And people will call the city and say, you need to do something about these peacocks. And they say, well, we can't because you guys passed legislation to make peacocks domesticated animals, which means we can't do anything about it because they don't belong to us. I think you can classify all that under rich people problems. Okay? Sometimes our wealth creates problems of our own making. It's amazing how narrow their life has become, does it not? All the energy that goes into this, is it not remarkable? But if you really want to see how trivial it is, just read the article next to it for a little contrast. 22 were killed this week at a bombing in Manchester after an Ariana Grande concert. Another article. ISIS gunfighters opened fire on a bus carrying Coptic Christians and killed 20 women and children. Sometimes the triviality of where we spend our energy is most clearly seen when we lay it against the backdrop of this broken and death-filled world. We have just enough money to try and pretend as though we can keep that out and not have to think about it. This is what Jesus is doing. As he is saying, death is coming for all of you, for all of us. And if you don't think about it, you're a fool. Because it puts things in perspective. He's inviting this man to see that his greed is trivialized by his own mortality. He's like, don't you understand? Do you not see that there's more? He says, sure, great, you can have all those things. But what happens when you die and you're just like your dad? And you leave it all behind. Has your life become so simple that your greatest questions is how do I get more stuff? Jonathan Edwards is well known for his resolutions. And uh, one of the resolutions he has that he would try to do daily or weekly, number nine, he says, I resolve to ponder my own death as often as possible. Why? Because if you stop and you think about your own death for a second, it protects you from chasing peacocks around. And you can begin to have a little bit of perspective and actually begin to understand what matters. And to remember that we are called to give an account to God and eventually our souls will be required of us. And we invest energy in the riches that he has to offer. Jesus offers this man a perspective on, or uh, a view of death because it offers perspective. What would it offer you? If you knew you were going to die this week on Friday, how would you spend the remaining energy you had? I think it would become a pretty precious resource. Who would you call to get right with? Who would you call to ask for forgiveness? Who would you call to apologize to? Who would you call to forgive? What relationships would you try to rebuild? What would you say to your children? What would you say to your spouse as you laid in bed at night? Would you be as easily inconvenienced if somebody cuts you off? Would you be so quick to anger or would you be a little bit slower and more patient? What would you pray for? What legacy would you seek to leave behind? Death offers us a perspective. But Jesus isn't just morbid. He's teaching this man how to be a wise man. Because wisdom, if you look at it from the Bible's perspective, is always a life and death issue. Go look 
at the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and see how much and how it's situated and couched in a life and death perspective. It has multiple chapters where you have this picture, a beautiful picture, of a father taking his son and showing him and talking to him about wisdom as though it were a man journeying on the journey of life. And on one side, he's called by Lady Wisdom. On the other side, he's called by Lady Folly. One way leads to life. One way leads to death. Teaching his son what it means to live a life of wisdom. And you'll see very quickly that wisdom always keeps an eye on death. It doesn't focus on death, but it never removes part of its gaze from death, and it always is factored into its decision. Why? Because wisdom lives knowing that at some point you will have to give an account to God who made you. One day your soul will be required of you. The fool, on the other hand, never thinks about it because he's too busy satisfying the cravings of his own gut. The fool never considers death never considers the God they will have to give an account to. And in this parable about wisdom, I want you to notice in you know, verses 16 through 20, the man is not a fool because he's rich. Nowhere does it condemn because the man is wealth. In fact, God made him wealthy. He visited wealth and abundance and blessing on this man. His crops just grew. Well, thanks God. That was God blessing this man. The problem wasn't his wealth. The problem was the conclusions that his wealth deceived him into. The problem was the conclusions that he came to were all of his goals simply resolved in this life. Like his goal was simply to have things that eventually he'll have to give up. He could not envision a life beyond this world. He could not envision a life where he had to actually consider his own mortality or about the fact that he will have to give an account to God, which means that he was boiled down to a much smaller view of life, which is to get the maximum amount of comfort possible. And God says to this man, he says, you fool. I think it's the only place in scripture where God calls someone that. You fool. You are a fool because you live like you will live forever. You live like you will never die. You live as though you can keep on to those, keep a hold of all of those things. What's a fool? Imagine a hoarder on the Titanic. That's a fool. They don't even understand that death is coming for them. Now, (coughs) excuse me. If we uh, turn this on ourselves, do we expend our energy and do we invest in those ways that know that we will have to give an account to God? Do we live and invest our energy knowing that we, our souls will be required of us? Do we live with this bigger perspective on life that includes life and death that we're involved in? And I think that as we look, about, look at this parable, we can essentially boil it down in two ways. Is that one, we can be this man and allow Jesus to push back on us. And the second way is that we can be like Jesus and offer others a bigger perspective. The first is letting Jesus push back on us, uh, which I didn't like very much this week. Because I, I talked to my wife and, and, uh, and I just said, you know what? I want to, you know, let's talk about maybe my energy and where I spend it. And... Um, uh, and I just wanted to have an honest conversation. You know, we talked about it, and quite frankly, um, it's amazing what a bigger perspective can do if you look over the last two years of what you've given your energy to. I, I'm the guy that has a hard time not bringing work home. I'm the guy that wants to just keep on working. I'm the guy that even when I'm with my family, I can be thinking about work. 
And I'm the guy that likes to have projects and I like to get things done. And I've got a, a, a long list of things around my house that I want to get done and get fixed up. That I always kind of talk myself into this long list of, of, or I always talk myself into being able to get done. And I just talked with her and I just had to apologize. I said, goodness, when I see, when I see how much I have, energy I've invested there, I said, I have to confess and apologize that I have not invested that type of energy in the health of our marriage. I have not invested that kind of energy into the type of dad that I should be. And the thing is, it's not that any of those things are inherently bad. It's good to, you know, want to fix those things up. The problem is that we miss what Jesus is talking about, is that we aren't rich towards God. It doesn't factor in. It's not that this man was bad because he was rich. He said, no, the problem is that he wasn't also rich towards God. And so, we can have a long list of priorities that we want to get done, but quite frankly, are they high on Jesus' list of priorities for you? You can have a list of things that you want to get done on, you know, the house, which is so easy, easy to do. But do you have a long list of ways that you want to grow in your faith? Do you actually have a list of ways that you want to grow in the type of husband and wife you are? Do you have a list of ways that you want to grow as the type of mom or dad you are? So how do we do that? Well, I think you just take that simple investment and try to begin to reinvest that energy elsewhere, but to also recognize that we're pretty self-deceived. So I would suggest maybe going to your spouse this week and saying, what's one thing I can do to begin to reinvest energy into the health of our marriage? And then to ask, too, what's one thing I can do that I'm blind to about the way I parent? What's one thing I can begin to work on to be a better parent and model godliness and holiness for our children and something that I have to change? In that moment, we have the opportunity to allow Jesus to push back on us or we can just change the subject and talk about something else. And I think the second way that we can um, think about this parable is that we have the opportunity also to be like Jesus with our kids. We can push back and offer a bigger perspective of life for our children. There's actually parents and children and their relationships um, are in this passage, but very subtly. If you think about it, this man is arguing about an inheritance with his brother, which means his father has died. But the problem is, is that his father's death evidently has not made him want to ask maybe some deeper questions about life and maybe offer those to Jesus. He just wants what he wants now. And maybe that would tell us a little bit of something about what that dad was like and what he left, because he left behind two greedy little boys. And maybe that was simply that wealth and power and setting yourself up, that's what life is about. And so, of course, whenever he's gone, they're bickering over money instead of being two brothers that learn to love and care for one another because it honors God. I think that we have to recognize that um, whatever we're greedy for and whatever way that we view the world, our children will inherit that view. Our children inherit our worldview. Our children inherit where we say it's good to invest energy. And I think that, you know, we can't really talk about energy in our context without talking about kids. We wouldn't be faithful to challenging ourselves if we didn't. Because we know that children in our, in our context receive so much of our energy, and we live in a culture that wants to take all of it. All your energy, the world will take it. All your kids' energy, the world will take it. It's crazy. I was talking with a family a couple of weeks ago. 
And they said their kid was enjoying doing this activity. And so they said, I would like to do this activity. And so they kind of looked online and they found a place they could do it one night a week. And so they said, great, nice and simple, nice and easy for this stage of life. They can do that. So they started to do it and they kind of dazzle them with the simplicity over here. And then they kind of get the knife out to stab them in the back like three weeks later. Because then they came and they said, well, it's not going to be this way anymore. You have to pay us $400 because it's now going to move to three nights a week. And you're like, where was that in the, you know, like this can't, this can't just be simple. Nothing is simple anymore. My goodness, when did it get so difficult? Like I remember growing up, it's like you played one sport per season and like the whole village, the whole town had like two baseballs and like one baseball bat and everybody had to share now it's like uh, we had to, you know, sell candy bars to buy our own jerseys. Now it's $400 and three nights a week all year. When did it get so hard to be a kid? How did it get so hard to be a parent? And the subtle message here is not that it's not that we live in a culture that just wants your kid to have some fun. We live in a culture that is constantly saying, no, if you want to be good at this, you have to invest all your energy and this has to become your life. This is what it is. At 12 years old, you need to be on the road to professionalism. And it's staggering how much it's changed and gotten so complex even since 20 years ago. And if we're not careful, we will, if we're not careful, we will undoubtedly perpetuate that worldview. We will teach our children a small view of life instead of the one that Jesus wants us to have and to offer a bigger perspective of life to them. And we will somehow, some way, if we don't offer the bigger perspective that Jesus wants, we will say and somehow subtly know the abundance of your life is in the abundance of your possessions. And so we can teach a a narrow view of life. And so instead of teaching a life and death perspective, we just simply teach success failure. Instead of teaching about life and death, we just teach about performance under performance. And instead of doing it, and the problem, well, the real issue is that with that is that if that's all we teach, then we're just simply teaching them how to build bigger barns instead of teaching them ultimately how to be rich towards God. And that is where the foolishness comes in. But even the bigger problem than that is that even though those things can be good to teach, if that's all we teach and that's all we sit with, that we offer as a value system, it can't handle the problems of real life. It couldn't handle death for this man in this perspective. Per, in, this, in this story, but what about all the other things that happened before death? You know, so you can get perfectly straight A's and you can get into a great college and you can get a great job, but then that's it. They don't know how to stay married or they leave the church. Or if we just simply teach a you know, performance, underperformance, responsibility type of worldview, they can perform really well their entire life, but then all of a sudden life begins to fall apart when they get a job where they have a boss that's so hard to work for because no matter how well they perform, it's never good enough. And then they begin to turn to other things. A small worldview is a big problem. And it's in this passage that we are encouraged to recognize that our children will inherit a large part of our worldview. And that the things that we value and the places we value investing our energy, we will hand down. Now, one thing I am not saying is that, um, like, I would, it's bad for your children to get into a good college. Or it's bad for your kids to have good grades. I'm not saying any of those things. And I don't want you to hear me say that. Nor am I saying, like, you know, if you try to fix your air conditioner when it goes out, well, you can't do that. Because it's going to cost energy and that should go to God instead. 
You know, tough luck. No, that's not the case at all. I want to give you a break, and I want to be honest, because it's very hard to live in our culture. It is very hard to live in our culture. All the time, all the money, and all the energy that you are constantly asked for, whether it's kids, whether it's just a home, whether it's your job, it is extremely hard to live in our culture, and it's extremely hard to raise children in our culture. It's like you can't just simply be a kid anymore. You can't just simply have your kid do something. And we have to push back on that. If it's all the voices that speak into our children's life, we have to recognize that we're called to push back, which is why Jesus says that we have to be careful and be on guard against all, all forms of greed and covetousness. And so as our culture gets harder and harder harder to raise kids, how much more so do we need the wisdom that Jesus offers to us and to seek the wisdom that only he can give? So how to raise Christians and not just consumers. It's very hard. And I hear some of the situations some of you are in, and it's like, goodness. I know it can probably feel sometimes like an impossible situation to try to figure out ways to raise your children in the faith in our frenetic culture. And yet, Jesus says we have to be watchful. And he says, seek wisdom. And don't just get caught up in the tidal wave of our culture that just wants to boil your life down to being your grades, and then all of a sudden it's the college you get into, and then your life is, then you are your college, and then you are your house, and then you are the job you get, and then the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Culture always has something to offer. And are we willing to be like Jesus and to push back for our children and teach them how to be rich towards God? And it's hard. But maybe you can start very simply to reinvest that energy. Maybe we can begin to do the small things. As the school year ends, to be able to go to our children and to say, um, I'm really proud of how hard you've worked. You've got some good grades. But you know what? I'm not proud of you just because you get good grades. I love you. I'm proud of you because you are my child and you have value because God created you and gave you to me. If we went to our children and we said, you know what, I know you really want this, but why don't we pray about it and see what Jesus has to say about it? Or you go to your, ch- your child and say, you know what, um, do you really want to do this activity anymore? You're 12. You don't need to be burnt out on anything. Like, do you still want to do this? Are you doing it because you want to please me or because you love to do it? Or as our children get older, we can begin to say, you know what, life is more than a paycheck. You have to remember that. Do what you love, but do it all to the glory of God. I don't care if you're a welder or a psychologist or a doctor. Whatever you do, you do it for his glory because life is more than a paycheck. It's more than the house you live in. Or maybe go to your children in, that, in the wisdom tradition of the scriptures and say to them, you know what, I want to sit down and I want to tell you my regrets. I want to tell you where I've messed up. I want to tell you where I wish I would have done a better job. I want to tell you that I wish I would have done this or done that. And of all my mistakes, I know and I wish, and I wish to impart to you that the best thing for you is to be rich toward God, your Father. Our children need us to push back on them because they have a world that is trying to get them to sign the dotted line. And we have to teach them how to cling to the cross because it's learned. And I think we often find that it's difficult sometimes to teach our children because it's difficult for us to do ourselves. And that's why whenever we do seek to do, be faithful to our children, it causes us to align our own priorities as well. 
Are we willing to push back? Are we willing to give that energy to those places that Christ delights in? In closing, in all of these things, Jesus doesn't bring in death um, because he's cynical or uh, morbid or pessimistic. He's actually doing a tremendous favor. He's reminding us of the reality of our existence, but he's also showing us the way of wisdom, which isn't just to say, be really you know, pessimistic, hey, everybody's going to die. No, he's saying, remember death so that you might actually live. Remember death so that you can actually not be, have a life filled with regret of investing all of your energy in things you can't even keep. But remember that you can be rich towards God. You can be freed from that life of regret and have a life of purpose and richness and vitality and value. He's doing us a favor. And in that invitation, as Jesus is on this journey, it's the same for this man as it is for us. Jesus comes to us and he says, I will make you wealthy beyond your, your mind's ability to comprehend if you follow me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what I have in store for those who love me. But the only way that we can experience those riches is when we let go of our covetousness and we lay hold of the cross. And death, no one on the other side of death has ever regretted signing on that dotted line. Will you? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that sometimes you have to get out the scalpel and kind of poke at us. Um, We thank you for poking on this man and pushing back. Uh, I confess my own misplaced energy when we simply kind of make good things ultimate things, when we make wants our needs, the ways that we have oversimplified our life to be uh, simply about the things that we're going to go home to and, and sit on and live under and drive around. Help us to not have a view of life so small that we think our life is based on those things. We need your help. Um, We need your help to see our blindness. We need your help to expose the ways that we deceive ourselves. We need our spouses. Help us to realize that they can speak to us and that they can uh, offer your words to us. Help us to humble ourselves before you and not change the subject. And help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. I ask all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.